opposing all of the instances of the rights manifestation and attack on our reproductive lives is key. We, we should be kind of showing up in the streets everywhere they show up. So that's not just kind of protecting our clinics when they show up outside of our clinics, but, you know, every public meeting of the Right to Life Committee, every public meeting of the Federal Society, every state Supreme Courthouse uh, or city hall where they're discussing abortion bans. You know, we need to be there. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello and welcome to this latest Salvage Live event. For those of you who are new here, Salvage Live is an event series co-hosted by Haymarket Books and Salvage, which is a radical print magazine published twice a year. I'm Rosie Warren, Editor-in-Chief of Salvage, and I'm delighted to be hosting this event to launch our 12th issue, This Ceaseless Storm, with Sophie Lewis and Anne Rumberger. Sophie Lewis is the author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against the Family, and the forthcoming Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. Anne Rumberger is an activist with New York City for abortion rights. For the better part of a generation, the right, especially in the US, but increasingly around the globe, has wielded attacks on reproductive rights as the main weapon in their war to turn back the clock on the hard-won gains of social movements. This campaign has recently borne fruit as legal access to abortion evaporated for millions overnight following the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Whether this will prove to be a decisive victory for the revanchists or a moment that will galvanize further resistance remains to be seen, but it has undeniably proven the inadequacy of the liberal strategy of relying on the courts and voting harder for pro-choice Democrats. In the latest issue of Salvage, both Sophie Lewis and Anne Rumberger argue for a different approach, one that abandons the timidity of the mainstream reproductive rights movement and that learns the hard lessons of what brought us to this juncture. Thank you both for joining me to launch this issue of Salvage. It struck me in working with both of you on these pieces for this issue that while they're very different, Sophie, you tried to think through the consequences of the liberal defenses of abortion in the US and how they failed to prepare us to really win ground. And Anne, you traced the origins of the evangelical anti-abortion movement. You actually land in a very similar place, which is to say that you both insist that the pro-abortion movement must insist that abortion is political and that we must be bolder in both our tactics, strategies, and our narratives in order to turn the tide in the US. So let's start off with some history. My first question for both of you is about how did we get to this place? Where did the left go so wrong in the US that we've seen the rolling back of such a fundamental reproductive right? And maybe you can kick us off. 
Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, the anti-abortion movement primarily started out as a Catholic movement, um, and it was uh, organized by the Catholic Church primarily. Um, it was more of a local, state-based um you know, kind of decentralized movement against the um, state uh, abortion liberalization laws um, that were uh, being proposed in the late 60s. Um, so because it was identified as a Catholic movement, it wasn't really of much interest to you know, most Protestants. Um, it was not really until the 1970s, um, the late 1970s, that evangelicals became really involved in the anti-abortion movement. Um, and there were a few reasons for this. Um, the moral majority was a main player in um, kind of instigating and organizing conservative evangelicals, not only into the anti-abortion movement, but into politics and into the Republican Party more generally. Um, and evangelicals, uh, you know, initially were not very drawn to the issue of abortion. Um, like the primary, the primary kind of activating issue for a lot of conservative evangelicals um, was a reaction to um, desegregation in the South. Um, so once uh, segregation, um, once the uh, Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 uh, ruled that separate but not equal was not constitutional, um, it uh, you know kind of kicked off an a whole series of uh, reaction. Um, so. It in um, the late 19 or in the mid 1960s, um, a lot of evangelical uh, uh, activists became really involved in supporting private schools, private religious schools that were still able to gain tax exempt status um, through their kind of religiously affiliated nonprofits. Um, and when the IRS uh, no longer allowed those schools to become to be tax exempt because they were segregated, um, that kind of activated a lot of uh, conservative Christians into politics. Um, that activation was kind of, uh, you know, not really uh, politically um, acceptable anymore, you know, kind of once we uh, once the civil rights movement kind of became the norm. Um, so a lot of um, anti-abortion uh, or a lot of uh, Republican kind of political operators um, used abortion as sort of the, the kind of next key issue to activate uh, an evangelical base. Um, so it was, it was kind of an interesting, um, uh, it was an interesting moment for anti-abortion uh, activists um, who, you know, kind of, uh, it was the issue of abortion, you know, that kind of, um, uh, you know, that brought a lot of antis into the movement, um, but it didn't start out that way. Um, I guess the other um, kind of interesting, uh, um, you know, part of the story was Operation Rescue. Um, and Operation Rescue kind of turned what had been uh, a really kind of small group of protesters who were protesting outside of uh, abortion clinics and hospitals into uh, an actual national campaign. Um, so Operation Rescue uh, eventually became the biggest social protest movement following the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, and Operation Rescue organized uh, evangelical churches to participate in anti-abortion activity outside of clinics. 
Um, they were founded in 1986, um, and they had over 60,000 arrests, according to them, from the from the mid 1980s until the early 1990s. So it was that militancy that brought in a lot of new recruits uh, to the anti-abortion movement. Um, they were also a movement that promoted conservative family values and kind of rebuilding a Christian nation. So it was much broader than fighting against abortion. Um, and this was a movement that started out by, you know, uh, the sit-in movement was kind of started by Catholics who were trying to uh, build an anti-abortion sit-in movement. Um, and they tried to turn out their congregations, but it really didn't become a large-scale movement until evangelicals joined in the mid-80s. Um, and uh you know, it was mostly Operation Rescue and Randall Terry who were able to translate what had been kind of a, a, a Catholic-dominated sit-in movement into a comprehensible Bible-based language that fundamentalists could understand um, and appealing to those fundamentalists in a way that previous anti-abortion leaders who were primarily Catholic couldn't really do. Um, so a lot of that religious justification for political action and for civil disobedience um, came from uh, Randall Terry, the founder of Operation Rescue, and it also came from uh, this very influential theologian named Francis Schaeffer, um, who uh, wrote uh, a lot of books and produced a couple of films, including this film series called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, um, which toured all over the United States and brought a lot of evangelical activists into the movement against abortion. Um, and Francis Schaeffer was kind of famous for, um, you know, kind of telling uh, conservative Christians that they could be politically engaged actors, um, that they could participate politically, that they could use civil disobedience as a tactic uh, to fight for their conservative social values. Um, and he kind of gave the religious justification for young evangelicals um, who were sort of looking for a more meaningful way to fight for their religious beliefs. They were kind of fed up with the, you know, kind of mainstream right to life organizations who were uh, much more timid um, and kind of engaged and really, um, you know, kind of incremental legislative action. And they were really looking for ways to get more involved. Um, and so it was Operation Rescue and Francis Schaefer who kind of, um, you know, kind of activated the kind of more militant uh, fringe of the direct action anti-abortion movement. Um, and we can talk more later about like the tactics involved in those direct action movements. Um but yeah, I would say that the, you know, between Operation Rescue and between, uh, you know, um, evangelical uh, political leaders like Jerry Falwell and like Paul, Paul Weyrich, um, they were kind of the, the main people involved in bringing evangelicals into the anti-abortion movement. Yeah, I mean, you cover a lot in your, in your piece about the kind of that bringing together of that coalition. I think you, you know, have done a lot of work about kind of tracing the way that um, that was kind of very deliberately and quite recently constructed. Um, Sophie, I wonder if you could pick up on the kind of other side of that equation, kind of what the left failed to do in the same period that has kind of also contributed to that victory. Yeah, um, I'm really glad that in a way, I think you phrased it as sort of what has the left done that we've we've got here. But then I think we needed to begin really with what Anne said, given that I think it is, you know, largely the right's sort of fault, quote unquote. However, now that we've really laid that out, like I do think we can and must address the failures of um, various feminisms um, and various not, not necessarily feminist 
left uh, uh, since the eugenics movement, really, uh, with Margaret Sanger's sort of interest in eugenics being one of the big drivers historically of the rollout of, uh, you know, contraceptive and abortion facilities, especially, you know, in uh, lower income communities where, you know, limiting family size was seen as, uh, you know, a sort of moral uh, imperative, not just for the individual, but for the sort of right to reproduction of the nation as a whole. Um, and so what you get there is this complicated sort of intertwinement of, uh, you know, a certain a certain historic feminism with, uh, you know, notions of, um, you know, uh, eugenic uh, uh, civilizing. Um, and it's not a sort of antenatal position at all. Or I mean, not to say that antenatalism would be preferable, preferable but it's, it's about uh, the production of babies as long as they're the right babies. Um, and so there was never an emphasis in that genealogy on the desirability of empowering pregnant people to say no uh, to, you know, motherhood, pa patriarchal motherhood um, uh, whatsoever. That was never part of that, that history of rolling out, um, you know, contraceptive and, and abortion access. Um, and so in a way, you know, um, we're still we're still really in the shadow of that uh, origin point. Um, of course, you know, in the long '60s there were some more militant discourses um, that had to do with sort of uh, collectivizing childcare and sort of uh, you know calling for abortion for the sake of you know the 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 no the the value of the no that one might wish to say uh, to. Uh, a pregnancy, right? Which, which in my book, Full Surrogacy Now, I try to talk about as a, a real uh, matter of gestational labor. Um, you know, the controversial part being that uh, of viewing gestating as labor is that forcing someone to gestate against their will is then forced labor, which in a liberal democracy is supposed to be um, an obscenity, you know, forced labor. Um, so in, in, instead of framing gestating as labor, um, and therefore, you know, abortion as a fundamental freedom, uh, not to perform forced labor, um, feminists in the U S, um, sort of in the sixties, uh, and then in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, which in a sense was a Pyrrhic victory, right. It, it thought of as a, Pyrrhic victory at the time uh, by 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 most I think uh, who who campaigned for it. Um, you know, there's been an emphasis on the sort of uh, the the necessity of abortion um, for the sake of you know uh, the lives of young girls of women, uh, the well being of children. Um, you know, there's been a, a, an emphasis on the sort of unavoidable need uh, for abortion. Um, and so the framing from the get-go has, e even in a sense among quite radical campaigns, right, the, the sense is that abortion helps society stave off um, something something worse than abortion. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, I think any campaign manager could tell you that if you want something, you know, to, to, to be brought into being, to be, to be made available, to be generalized, 
uh, across the world, you you don't start off by apologizing for it. That should not be the first thing out of your mouth. Like I don't think any campaign has ever won like like that. Um, so it's important, I think, to hammer home that it was a failure to to frame abortions rather than the unwanted pregnancies that they end uh, as a bad thing that should be rare, right? And that and that's obviously I'm referring to. Uh, safe, legal, and rare, the, the mantra that was uh, the, the Clintons, Bill Clintons, and then Hillary Clintons, uh, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, policy platform, really, around abortion. Um, and we're in a different era today. Uh, abortions ca- uh, are generally safe, uh, although they are uh, certainly now uh, in the US, not, not legal, right? The, the emphasis need not be anymore as as it was you know 50 years ago on on safe right so we can kind of get we can kind of i don't want to say get rid of because obviously you know there are some risks associated with with abortion especially and those are worse in a context where it's illegal but we don't need to really bring back the the coat hanger metaphor because i think that detracts from the 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 prime focus that i think this fight should be about which is sort of labor and uh, carcerality, right? Like prison abolition, uh, fighting, you know, uh, the, the criminal industrial complex um, and, and, and fighting the, the forced regime of care <laughs> uh, that, that sort of, uh, that I would personally want to frame as the, the private nuclear household and linking it to the politics of the family. But to, 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 to just stop digressing quite so much and, and answer your question, you know, safe, legal and rare, was wrong, as I say, because um, uh, we don't want <laughs> abortions to be rare, <laughs> like necessarily. Perhaps they will become rare. I mean, in a, in a sense, that's probably uh, inevitable. Uh, but we, but that's not for us uh, to demand upfront uh, in a context where you know we have none. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, uh, it is completely appropriate. To, 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 to full-throatedly say uh, we want abortions uh, we, because abortions are uh, sociologically proven to produce uh, overwhelmingly um, good effects on people's lives. Uh, that is not a matter of um, debate. That's a matter of fact. Uh, what do abortions do for people and for communities? Uh, they produce well-being, relief, happiness. And even if you want to count things and measure things this way, you know, uh, you know, ri- more wealth, right? Like, uh, you know, more comfortable households uh, for the children that that you might have later on, right? If you if you if you have access, if you care about that kind of thing. Uh, but as I say, I think we can go further, you know, than than talking about, um, you know, the benefits on children of the future uh, of abortions today, right? Like, I think we should be able to say even beyond saying. Abortion is healthcare that should therefore be available to everybody. Um, we should be able to say abortions are, you know, regardless of what they are, and we can we can return to that later. Like have a debate about what they are, whether they're healthcare or not. Uh, that they are good, right? And we want them. Um, and that's the piece that has really been missing, I think, from the left's uh, uh, perspective uh, on on um, the right, as I would call it to to quit gestational work. Great. Yeah, so much that I want to come back to um, later in the conversation. But for now, I know this is something you're really interested in, Anne. Um, 
is, you know, the anti-abortion movement itself not only has this, you know, recent and very um, strategic history, but it's also been kind of remarkably durable and adaptable. Um, and I wonder, Anne, if you could talk a bit more about um, the kind of new iterations of anti-abortion activists that we're seeing who are kind of appropriating feminist and social justice language, who are kind of trying to appeal to young women specifically. Um, and, you know, maybe again, it's not right to kind of frame this in terms of the failures of the left, but I wonder if, you know, is there a deficiency in the way that we're talking about abortion that makes it easy for the right to do that? Can you talk a bit about your experience of that? And Sophie, maybe you'll have something to say afterwards. Yeah, the newest iterations of the anti-abortion movement, I feel like, are really clever in how they're appropriating so much social justice and racial justice language. Um, I mean, this has kind of always been the case, and we're just sort of seeing the latest version of this. But, you know, uh, it's it's really uh, apparent that they're trying to appeal to young people and especially to young women, I think, um, you know, kind of using this progressive language. So, you know, like there's a, a, a small group that's called the Progressive Anti-Abortion uprising. Um, and they use terms like, you know, we need to stop the abortion industrial complex. Um, you know, they uh, call themselves uh, pro-life feminists. Uh, they talk about uh, the abortion industry as being one that's primarily seeking profits and not supporting people. Um, you know, they're talking not just about, uh, you know, the unborn, as they call them, but they're also talking about pregnant people. Um, and and so we're seeing a lot of these groups, you know, sort of say that they're they're there to help them both. They want to help the fetus. They want to help the mother. Um, and, you know, this has been part of, a, you know, a strategy that they've had for decades, you know, where now crisis pregnancy centers uh, outnumber abortion clinics, you know, by a huge amount. Um, and I think part of the reason why these crisis pregnancy centers, you know, which are often uh, they some of them receive funding from the state and from the federal government, they're often you know, religiously affiliated. Um, but a lot of them do offer material support to people who are in a moment of crisis. Um, and that can't really be discounted. So, you know, that type of material support uh, is not really coming from the state at all. So, you know, it, it is a failure. Uh, it's a failure on behalf of our movements that we've been unable to provide for people um, and unable to kind of link the, you know, the calls for abortion access to wider calls for material support for people. Um, you know, the, the reproductive justice framework, I think, is extremely important and we need to, you know, kind of center that. Um, and I think we just need to figure out, you know, how do we make that reproductive justice framework apparent in all of our actions? Because um, I think that there's a reason why, you know, this kind of progressive, this seemingly progressive language uh, ha gets some traction. Um, and, and that's because I think, you know, it's so obvious to people that uh, people don't actually have a choice about whether or not they want to have children. It's so out of reach for so many people. Like so many people cannot afford to have children. Um, you know, they, they can't take care of their children in safe communities. Um, and I think it's the, the mainstream reproductive rights movement, um, you know, and kind of the pro-choice Democrats have just totally abandoned, uh, you know, um, the, the difficulties that people are facing as parents. And I think that, you know, our, our movement has to be one that 
makes it easier for people to choose to become parents if that's what they want to do. And that has to come from with, you know, with a greater social safety net with actual support for parents. Um, you know, so those demands can be really clear things like, you know, universal health care, um, you know, universal child care, paid parental leave, uh, you know, better minimum, higher minimum wage, um, access to affordable housing, you know, all of those things have to be like a clear part of our demand. You know, it can't just be that we want people to be able to get abortions, which we do. Like people should be able to get abortions at any point, at any time, for whatever reason, and they should be free. But we also need to link those to our demands for more support for people who choose to have children. And I think the the right has really um, been able to uh, take advantage of the lack of support for parents and claim that they can offer that support. You know, they they can't really like they can offer limited material support through churches, you know, through crisis pregnancy centers. We can offer more if we were if we really wanted to, you know, um, and I think, you know, it's it's going to take that level of, um, you know, kind of expansiveness around our movement uh, in order to combat these, you know, kind of seemingly progressive slogans uh, and rhetoric that the, the anti-abortion movement is able to harness. But it's really fascinating just to see the number of young people drawn to the anti-abortion movement. Um, and I, I think a large part of that is because there's just nothing else on offer. Yeah, I think uh, Anne's covered, you know, everything I would have liked to say primarily, which perhaps means that I can just comment, you know, that the the much, uh, you know, popularized and, and, and rightly so at this point, you know, uh, distinction between reproductive rights as a framework and reproductive justice, uh, which I'll just summarize, it's, it's usually about pointing to the history of a kind of middle-class white-led pro-choice organizing that focused too much on um, a woman's right to have an abortion and sort of failed to appreciate um, why a bigger priority for immigrant, indigenous, black, disabled and incarcerated women might rather be uh, the fight to not be forcibly sterilized. You know, that, that, that important distinction, which I think has now, along with the healthcare framing of abortion, become like you know, almost universally quoted and, and and pointed to, can in fact paradoxically be sort of overdone uh, to the point uh, that it erases uh, to some extent the you know the, the the really powerful black working class feminist organizing that was at the forefront front of the of the abortion access struggle historically. I sort of think Kianga Yamata Taylor has been making this point uh, recently to an extent. So, you know, um, because, because in a sense that can play into the uh, the point that I forgot to mention when you asked about the failures of the left, which was partly that uh, too much breath was given to the, the completely fallacious idea that, um, you know, uh, abortion is, a, you know, a, a, a white conspiracy, you know, to, um, yeah, uh, uh, unmake the black nation, right? There, there was a lot of black nationalist uh, anti-abortion discourse uh, that the women in black nationalist organizations had to uh, very painstakingly sort of contest and 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 struggle against and unmake. But that was a you know that was a successful historic uh, uh, conversation internal to black movements, right? Um, 
And so I think today we need to be clear that, um, you know, a, a huge proportion of the people who sort of uh, got us, you know, <laughs> gestational freedom, uh, gestational labor freedom was those uh, those same women who insisted on the right to have, for instance, uh, welfare uh, payments, regardless of whether they were respectable mothers or wannabe workers, right? Uh, the, the, the radicals who, who were sort of very much, uh, pushing a, uh, a, a horizon, a, a little like wages against housework, uh, that, that sought to sort of, uh, explode the, the framework of the sort of, um, public, private sort of production, reproduction, uh, structure of capitalist society. And, and, and push beyond the work society that that, that, that comes from that um, organization and say, you know, for now, what we need, you know, fuck you, pay me. You know, we need <laughs> we need resources. Um, uh, and, 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 and so there isn't, you know, that, that's the, the, the interesting legacy, I think, uh, of abortion struggle. Um, and so, you know, I suppose, uh, yeah, the, the wonderful sort of dialectical formula of sister song um, the, the organization for, for reproductive justice is uh, is this vindication of the right to make babies, the right to not make babies, and then the right uh, the, the right to care for babies that already exist in a safe and healthy environment. Um, and you know it's as I say, it is much quoted, much pointed towards in the mainstream, but I don't think it's sufficiently thought about how how actually radical and I would almost argue, uh, family abolitionist, <laughs> that, that dialectical formula uh, might be, right? Because I think it stretches in a utopian way uh, the conceptual limits of the term rights um, and takes us uh, t toward a horizon of freedom. Um, it takes our fight beyond the confines of the legal system and it makes clear that justice is something that requires abolition, right? As Ruthie Wilson Gilmore would say, like the need to change one thing, which is sort of everything. Um, because th this is about the worlding of entire environments that are conducive to flourishing for, uh, you know, mothers, or as I would maybe say, motherers of all genders, uh, currently struct uh, structurally consigned uh, to poverty and ab abjection. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, You'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Writing Red, an anthology of American women writers, 1930 to 1940, edited by Charlotte Nicola and Paula Rabinowitz. This landmark collection of fiction, poetry, and reportage by revolutionary women of the 1930s lays to rest the charge that feminism disappeared after 1920 and adds important texture to our picture of American radicalism in the early 20th century. Topics covered in the volume range from sexuality and family relationships, to race, class, and patriarchy, to party politics. Toni Morrison writes that the anthology is peopled with questioning, caring, socially committed women writers, and Keisha N. Blaine notes that it powerfully captures the vital role of revolutionary women played in shaping American Radicalism During the Great Depression. It is a must-read for anyone interested in history, gender, and politics. Find Writing Red at haymarketbooks.org.
It leads actually pretty directly into my next question, which is I'm really interested in your focus, Sophie, on the way we talk about abortion and the kind of narratives we use to talk about it and to defend it. Um, And in the piece, you kind of trace the move from safe, legal and rare to the healthcare framing, which is kind of where, as you say, the kind of mainstream has now landed. And you talk about why that's not really enough, especially in a context where most people don't have access to healthcare. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about why you think feminists in the US have gotten that so wrong and what our narratives, I mean, you've already touched on this a bit and what you've just said, but what our narratives as a movement should be instead. I think I'll focus on that last part. Um, I think, well, you know, just to say, um, it's it's obviously a massive victory to have generalized the healthcare framing. Um, I don't want to be misunderstood as um, bashing that. Um, it is frequently remarked that in a country where you know nobody has access to healthcare, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it it it's a sort of mixed blessing, right, to yoke abortion to uh, the, the the healthcare sort of uh, demand. Um, I think it's worth, you know, it's it's important. Uh, I think, uh, and and it is radicalizing, you know, um, and uh, it it forces, you know, those uh, uh, you know liberal bourgeois feminists who are interested in saying that um, you know abortion is not political or whatever, uh, and in sort of continuing this tradition, uh, you know, as affirmed by. Um, Justice Blackman, you know that that uh, the the decision of abortion is fundamentally a medical one, and that it therefore lies with the physician. You know, which is in itself quite, um, yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a conclusion that you can contest. Uh, you know, to begin with, right? This this idea that medical means uh, give you know bodily autonomy ceded over to the expert to the doctor, right? But you know. Um, but 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 it also means that you then say yeah you know without without uh yeah free socialized healthcare uh you know no 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 abortion freedom um uh, you know are we willing to fight that hard i hope so right uh, and i and i hope that in a sense maybe it can convince some feminists to go hard for free socialized you know universal healthcare and i mean it has to be really universal um but uh, yeah, I, I do also think that healthcare uh, is a framing that encourages a certain kind of, um, you know, um, sort of moral um, and respectable uh, justification for abortion. Still, uh, depending on how um, it is set, right? It, it has the potential for that. In the most radical mouths, it is simply. Um, you know, a cry for bodily autonomy, right? Uh, the medical problem being, uh, you know, my my anatomy has been seized by a process of gestational labor, which is extremely injurious to it, right? This is another thing I emphasize uh, in full surrogacy now and elsewhere. Um, you know, pregnancy is far more dangerous than abortion. Just there's no comparison between the two. Uh, pregnancy kills 300,000 people a year and injures uh, seriously millions more. Right? That, that's when it's working uh, as it is supposed to, you know. Um, and uh, uh, you know, in that sense, you know, we need to be clear: there can be no non-violence in the terrain of human gestation, right? 
Um, human gestation is um, an agonistic um, process, uh, biologically speaking, which I can already tell, you know, someone in the audience is misunderstanding as me saying pregnancy is bad, right? Like it's, it's I, bad, boo, bad, pregnant, but you know, no babies, you know, babies are bad, you know, and this is obviously not what I think. If I, if I thought that I would not have written an entire book about, you know, um, gestational care and, and gestational workers and how much uh, they deserve and how how richly the world ought to belong to them, right? Um, however, you know, it, it, it's, I think, never uh, um, the right way to respect um, a group, um, to romanticize them, right? And romanticization is basically you know, the, the, the first and greatest error uh, <laughs> of the left vis-a-vis the maternal, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I would rather see uh, a discourse that was capable of giving gestating the respect it deserves, um, because it is a, a grisly and a sublime uh, and a sometimes quite boring and banal, but certainly miraculous process by saying, you know, it is bananas to expect anyone to do this against their will, right? It is uh, that the fact that it is good should also be linked to the fact that it is imperative that one do it of one's own free will and accord, right? Um, that that's what respect for gestating would mean, um, and and respect for the if you want, it's also respect for the fetus because a fetus should not be gestated unwillingly. You know, um, and and that that emphasis on um, on the on the the value of that uh, creativity and its uh, refusal, right, um, it, it is what I would like to see uh, centered more. Um, yeah, I suppose I should finish the thought. You asked me how we should frame it, so to to just fully say it. I, I am saying that while we don't have to frame abortion as a form of killing, that it is right and, and certainly possible to defend, uh, we can, if we want, frame it that way. We don't have to be afraid. Okay, yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting provocation that you raised, Sophie, and I, I feel like it, um, you know, uh, is something that we should talk more about, like that, uh, you know, that like some of this conversation is a little bit like it's a it's an ethical conversation, like about the meaning of uh, personhood in a way. Like, I mean, we're never obviously going to solve the question of like when life begins. And I don't think that's, you know, uh, any anything that people are interested in. But it's like, what is the moral status of the fetus? Uh, and like, how has that changed over time? Like I was reading uh, this book by Kristen Luker and and it was came out in the 80s. And she makes the claim that I hadn't really seen before, that she claims that the moral status of the fetus was ambiguous and that it's always been ambiguous, like across, you know, human history, across, you know, uh, biology and philosophy and law. And, you know, that she kind of makes this claim that it's just new interpretations of the moral status of the fetus that kind of charges this argument about, you know, kind of the philosophical issue of, of personhood, um, you know, and it obviously like changes in different, uh, you know, kind of social contexts where, you know, I think like in the eighties, like a lot of the kind of conversations about the moral status of the fetus was also, 
you know, like an implicit statement about the role of women in society and like, you know, kind of larger conversations about family values. Um, you know, like if the, the moral status of the fetus like supersedes that of the pregnant person, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, making the claim that it's not really socially permissible for women to subordinate their reproductive roles to other roles, that their primary role is that of a gestator, like that of, you know, bringing new life into the world. And that was obviously extremely important, you know, in, in that period where there's like, you know, there was such a backlash, you know, to the recent gains of like the second wave feminist movement. And it, it feels like we're in this a similar position where we're like kind of seeing a similar backlash and like a similar, uh, you know, like rise of these like very patriarchal, you know, kind of white Christian nationalist groups who are really invested in kind of returning to like, you know, uh, old school patriarchal gender norms and like the whole like trad wife, you know, culture, which I know has always been, it's always been around, but I just feel like, you know, the, the trad wife is everywhere now. And like, it, it's, you know, we're seeing stories about like young women converting to Catholicism and becoming, you know, much more religious. And like their dream is to be a stay at home mom and to be taken care of and to not work, you know, to not, you know, work in the, you know, in the labor market, but to be, you know, to be uh, wives and mothers. Um, so it feels like it's, you know, that there is a connection between like, you know, the kind of uh, um, the the new interest or the return to like the, the popularization of these traditional gender roles. And, uh, you know, especially among like young women now and the kind of new, uh, you know, kind of fetal personhood laws that are being proposed, um, the kind of uh, returning to the moral status of the fetus as being equal, if not higher, so, you know, superior to the rights of the pregnant person. So I'm just curious, like what you, how you see those. So if you, uh, you know, kind of see that like debate as being part of our conversation about abortion rights, like how we talk about the moral status of the fetus. Thank you, Anne. Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, I love that we are all talking to each other now. I think that's very appropriate. Like, um, I, I don't necessarily always think of this as exclusively a bioethical question but i think i think you are you i think you are right that uh, uh uh i mean it certainly is i think it maybe isn't only like i don't necessarily want to think of myself as a bioethicist when i say that um you know what if abortion is killing um then it's a form of killing uh, that that is a, that is that it, that produces good effects uh, for life in particular. Um, it is a bioethical question, but I don't think it has to be consigned exclusively to that domain. It's it's political. Like uh, you know, we're. I mean, I am <laughs> a political theorist more than a bioethical theorist, and I'm interested in forms of non non violence. Um, that are part of, um, you know, revolutionary struggle for one thing, but also just the 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 the, the labor of people making and life making. But to 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 actually get to your point about um, the sort of uh, yeah the 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 forces that you're so good at, um, you know, describing the rise of and the the, the current kind of. Uh, popularity of. I was actually watching a segment of um, Tucker Carlson uh, in a hotel room in Chicago, uh, where uh, because I was at a social 
socialism conference with uh, lots of reproductive justice panels, as you know, as you know, since you were there. But um, he he said um, some extremely um, progressive sounding things about uh, the you know, this is the red brown moment, right? This is the moment where people can actually get recruited uh, into the sort of brown shirts um, because of the appeal and the correctness, the limited correctness of things that that ultra reactionaries like like Tucker Carlson are saying about, um, you know, the undesirability of being forced to work because he framed abortion as something that bosses um, are forcing on workers, right? And this is how you, it was tapping into the trad wife appetite. You were saying, you know, how horrible, you know, that we don't value baby making um, and that we want our women to be working in offices uh, uh, and that the, uh, the corporations are forcing, you know, America's women to have abortions um, when, when we should be valuing, uh, the, you know, the, the, the contribution they make by by a by a baby making right, and that's uh, you know that is sort of uh, it's 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 not close to what I say. It's the it's the other side. It's the you know it's my enemy, but he is more correct uh, than a liberal who wants to paper over uh, the distinction. You know. Um, uh, you know, between productivity and anti-productivity, or is not willing to embrace, uh, you know, the, the the problem of class, right, at the at the core of all of these issues. Uh, because I want to say, yeah, you know, um, uh, it, it, and, and indeed there is this like beautiful legacy of radical welfare uh, militants who who who, as I mentioned, were saying the same things. Like, no, I don't, I don't want to ask for money. Um, so that I can make a good contribution to society as a housewife and a mom. I want to ask for money because I want money, right? Like it, it sounds sort of almost, um, you know, it, it sounds like something that you could confuse for a certain kind of girl bossism or something, but it's the opposite because we're talking about anti-productivity. We're talking about instead of valuing yourself differently, like valuing care, like, giving care the same kind of dignity as you do, uh, you know, um, uh, productive work, which, yeah, like, you know, of course, care is more important. We want to, you know, care is something that we need to, like, put at the heart of society. But I'm not interested in in using this language of value, you know, um, like refusal is is good in both spheres, right? We have to be clear on that. Like, otherwise you get into these very, very scary places politically. And we have Tucker Carlson making a better case, uh, you know, in a sense, <laughs> like for the reproductive justice element um, of, of like rejecting abortion, you know, than, than, than a left feminist, which is a very scary place to be. But I think when we're talking about killability, we need to be very careful for this exact same reason, right? I'm not trying to make fetuses killable. It might sound like I am, but that's why I'm saying this, this, this needn't get sucked into a bioethical debate about the moral status of fetuses at at every turn. Like I, I'm not I'm not saying that um, you know that that title that I mentioned, abortion is is a form of killing, and and that's okay. It's actually a real ma- misrepresentation of what I say in the article, which is actually specifically that I'm not sure it's okay. Like I'm really not sure about claims like that. Like there is very little in capitalist society that is that is totally okay. Do you know what I mean? Uh, what, what, 
we're, we're going somewhere. Maybe one day, you know, it, we will have, you know, uh, achieved a state of, you know, technological sophistication and uh, reproductive justice that might mean that, yeah, we can start giving fetuses um, uh, the sort of moral consideration that I would like to give to non-human animals as well right now, you know, um, and, and think about their right to not be eaten and uh, and killed, right? But for now, like, it, I want to suspend this whole, like, is it okay question, because what we know is that it's good, um, which is a different different question like not to be like super philosophically nerdy but it's it's a different question you know um and so that it's true uh in some cases it might be limitedly useful to point out that um you know we're all inextricably uh bound up in 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 killing right um because you know the right doesn't care like it knows and it doesn't care right uh uh, killing for them is supposed to refer to something that's done to uh, persons, you know. Um, hence, you know, chickens are not persons, so chickens aren't killed, they are slaughtered. Uh, and likewise, uh, Yemeni fisherwomen uh, aren't really being killed when the US uh, drone bombs them because they occupy a kind of less than human category. Uh, I mean, of course, we try to say different, but you know that that's how it works it, you can't gotcha people with this with this sort of uh bioethical argument you can't like Brett Kavanaugh for example is supposed to be uh, adamantly against uh you know murdering sick you know a fetus right but then you know you look at what um he voted for in 2007 when he wanted two disabled women uh to have abortions you know Suddenly, the, the fetus in his eyes is killable, right? Um, I, I mean, and, and 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 on their side, that doesn't that doesn't register, right? That you can't get uh, anywhere. I think ultimately, with this sort of like exposing of hypocrisy, um, we're sort of wasting our time. Uh, even though I, you know, I like the chant um, "pro life." That's a lie you don't care when women die because, you know, it's, it's helping educate our side to open our eyes to that. But as long as we're talking to them about that inconsistency, I don't think we're, we're really getting anywhere, but I do think there's value for us in opening up a conversation about this very like unfamiliar, tricky, scary uh, uh, question of, of the fact that of course abortion kills something like that's the point, you know, do, should we be afraid? Should we, should we always be afraid when they try and gotcha us <laughs> like uh, with that? Maybe not. Like what, why can't we admit like <laughs> that, that, that because of certainly people who do abortions know this, you know, that there is something um that uh that dies that 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 we we want to stop making live uh, uh, uh and so that's you know that's that's a sort of unavoidable thing about the thing that we're trying uh to bring to the people um and that that's maybe something that i i would like to see more people get on board with I totally agree with you there. Like on the whole, you know, maybe we should recognize that like terminating a pregnancy is stopping the potential life of a future child. But it almost feels like, you know, the way to combat that or to like argue against that is to then say uh, the the value of the pregnant person's life is of is greater like it's of greater value than the potential future life of this child so in a way it, it is engaging with kind of values based 
judgments. And like, obviously those are, you know, subjective and they're ideologically inflected and they're influenced by people's religious perspectives. But I find that to be like a, uh, you know, an argument that I sympathize with of like placing greater value on people's personal decisions and their you know, and the the value of them to making that decision about the good life, about being able to, you know, to end the future life of something that they don't want to have inside their bodies anymore, like that should have precedence that should like, be of greater value than, you know, than this potential life, even recognizing that it is, you know, it is ending, you know, what could be a what will be a life. It's a, it's a complicated, you know, dynamic. So I think it's, and it's definitely not talked about enough. You know, the, just one more thing. The other thing that I uh, have come across that I find really interesting kind of um, in terms of framing these issues is like, do we use the rights framework? Like is claiming that we have a right to abortion or that this is a human rights issue? Like, is that the right framework for us? And we kind of talked about how it's not you know, it's sort of a limited framework, um, but it also, uh, it, it just like brings up some really interesting historical questions about like the the anti-abortion use of the human rights framework uh, and kind of this moment in, uh, I guess, like the late 60s when it actually became like kind of two competing human rights claims, you know, that like the original kind of anti-abortion claim you know, was that, uh, you know, they needed to protect the right to life. And this was actually like a, a, a new position for the Catholic pro-life movement, which like originally kind of started out as like part of their, you know, um, position against contraception, uh, which was extremely unpopular and like really only of interest to Catholics. Like, you know, there was not a lot of interest among Protestants or any other group uh, in banning access to contraception. So it was like a, a kind of um, a conscious decision for them to divorce the kind of right to life from their unpopular position against contraception. Um, and so they used, they embraced the human rights framework, you know, kind of in the late sixties and the, we, they were able to appeal to a lot of liberal Catholics who were also against the death penalty, who were also against war, who are against nuclear buildup. Uh, you know, they kind of use this like consistent life ethic framework um, or like seamless garment framework where they talked about being opposed to all, uh, you know, uh, anything that caused death, um, you know, anything that like stopped the production of life. And it was like, that was a much more consistent philosophy and a consistent framework to be kind of against the death penalty and against abortion and against war. And now you just don't see that anymore. Like they kind of dropped all these other, you know, uh, positions and it's kind of just become about abortion, but it, it became this kind of competing human rights framework where we're arguing for the rights of women to terminate their pregnancies and for self-determination and bodily autonomy. And they're arguing for the rights of the unborn. Um, so it almost, that maybe just gives us another reason to kind of drop the rights framework, you know, or kind of think about how we can expand it beyond a women's rights issue, which was really effective, you know, in winning us abortion rights in the, in, in the seventies, but now feels a little bit, maybe it's outdated. Maybe we need to do more. Maybe it's too limited of a framework for us. Like, you know, that that's the, uh, maybe another reason why we should be embracing the, the reproductive justice framework or thinking beyond that. Like what else, what other framework can we use that goes beyond human rights? Yeah, before um, we move on, I just want to say to people in the audience, we are going to take some questions. So if you want to pop your questions in the chat, 
um, we'll, we'll come to those or leave some time. Um, but for now, I wonder, you know, so far we've, we've been in mostly in a kind of US context and somewhat in a kind of theoretical register. But obviously this isn't only a dark moment. Um, it's really striking that the US has seen this defeat almost exactly the same time when we've actually seen a bunch of victories for pro-abortion activists elsewhere in Argentina and Colombia, in Ireland, although importantly not in the North. Um, but various other places have won really big um, victories. I wonder, you know, what what do you think that we can learn from those countries and from those movements? And um, I don't know if either of you want to have a stab at why, you know, why the right has been so successful in the US and and not in these um, in these other other places. I think, oh, go ahead, Sophie. No, no, I was going to say, I mean, you have much, much more to say, I think, about about this in general. But I, I would just I would just say that I think the puritanical settler colony uh, roots of the United States have a lot to account for. And, and, and maybe I can, you know, expand on that if we have time. But I, you know. I just wanted to put that there as a placeholder. Um, uh, and I also wanted to just uh, uh, comment on how extraordinary it has been to read about um, the trans inclusivity of the movements in Latin America that, had, that have won abortion access, because I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily sure what that had looked like on the ground, but I've been spending some time uh, reading the accounts of the people who've been fighting these fights. And, and, and it seems that, uh, uh, one of the the really like common themes has been like a, a total like hardline sort of uh, refusal to, to to capitulate to a sort of uh, cis-sexist uh, biologically sort of exclusive framing uh, of 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 gestational politics. So that you know those two things. Go ahead, Anne. You're yeah. Over to you. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot we can learn. Um, but, you know, these are all different contexts. So, uh, you know, I think in, in Argentina, the feminist movement there, um, you know, connected abortion rights to fights, fights against femicide and violence against women. And I think that was, um, you know, really key for them to be able to build those coalitions so that it was a much broader movement um, than just calling for access to abortion. Um, uh, I think it was also spurred by uh, like a lot of murders of young women and um, the the slogan that they use, the Neonamenos slogan, I think like encaptured, you know, kind of captures the, the breadth of the movement so that it was, you know, calling attention to gender violence and uh, and uh, the number of people who are killed, you know, who, who die because of lack of access to abortion. Um, and it was also like a, a direct action movement. You know, it was thousands of people taking to the streets, um, you know, kind of shutting down business as usual. Um, you know, it, it was like uh, the the street protests, I think, were what really captured the attention and put a lot of political pressure on, um, you know, on the politicians there. Um, I also saw a lot that they used the framing of social justice and public health um, a lot more than I think we do in the U.S. Um, they weren't kind of talking about abortion as an individual right the way that we do here, um, but rather as 
was, um, you know, a, a question of social justice that emphasized that poor women are the ones most likely to encounter dangerous conditions when seeking abortions. Um, and I think that they highlighted the class element of their demands much more than we've been able to do. Um, they had a really great chant uh, that basically went, the rich abort and the poor die. Um, so I think that those, uh, like highlighting that, uh, was really effective. Um, I think also that, uh, you know, that there were a lot of conservative social movements in Argentina as well. Um, so I, I don't think that, I think they were kind of operating in a similar, uh, position with the Catholic church. They're being extremely powerful. Um, just like in the U S you know, there are a lot of people who are organized through their churches, um, you know, both Catholic churches and evangelical churches. And we just don't really have an equivalent, um, you know, uh, of kind of people who are pro-abortion to kind of organize ourselves in a, in a national context, a national way like that. We just don't have an organized feminist movement. Um, you know, we, we don't have the equivalent of, of church spaces to organize people. Um, so I think that's, that's one really big distinction. Um, I think the campaign in Ireland um, did a really good job of just having conversations with everybody about abortion, just kind of normalizing it and destigmatizing it. Um, that campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment, uh, which was passed in 2018, um, seemed to really focus on like using social media and just telling stories um, just to make it so clear that everybody is affected by uh you know, abortion bans and repro politics more generally. Um, and I think, I know we have groups like that. We have shout your abortion and we have this great group called we testify. Um, and, and I think we could really learn from how they kind of talked about abortion as part of, uh, as part of healthcare. Um, they talked a lot about, uh, kind of just individual stories. I know they focused a lot on kind of these rare cases, you know, with, um, uh, with people like, uh, uh, Savita Halapanavar, who was, uh, she had a, a, a septic pregnancy and she was killed uh, because doctors were not able to um, do an abortion procedure on her because she was not like close enough to death for them to save her life, basically. And that like spurred a huge outcry and protests. And so I think kind of sharing these like really outrageous uh, cases really helped convince people um, in that case. And so I, I'm, I don't know how I feel about that, because I think that those are, you know, those are, those are obviously like really emotional appeals to people. Um, but obviously, we can't just be fighting for abortion access for those rare cases when, you know, people's lives are in danger, like we need to be you know, making it clear that abortion is acceptable and should be available to anybody at any point in any situation. So I think it almost like is complicated for us to focus on those kind of more sensational stories. But that that was a tactic that worked really well in Ireland. Absolutely. This is not so much a reference to movement, but I, I it is so rare for me to, to encounter a truly like, uh, you know, militant uh, pro-abortion piece of like music <laughs> that I just want to shout out to the Oakland rapper 
uh, TNFW Neek, who has a new song that is just going viral right now. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, check it out. Uh, as my wife remarked, right, uh, I uh, thought I was, uh, you know, a bit risque for saying abortion is a form of killing and, you know, that's and it's good or whatever. <laughs> but she says uh, in the refrain of uh, BDF, which stands for baby daddy free, uh, that she's got murder on her mind. And it's a hell of a jam. She's like, let's go, bitch. I got murder on my mind. Um, and she says, uh, it's a shortage on the milk and these diapers be expensive. I ain't trying to be a MILF. So I swallow all his children. Um, I done take care of um, words. Now it's time to care for me. Let's go, bitch. I got murder on my mind. And everybody is listening to this. And it's a hell of a, uh, hell of a jam. Um, so for me, I am actually, I mean, you know, it's one song. But uh, it, it, I'm hopeful that the extraordinary lethargy of the mainstream, uh, re, you know, uh, 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 pro-choice movement uh, in the U.S., will maybe start catalyzing these kinds of forms of creative aggression, uh, as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore would call them, uh, sort of from the streets, from the, you know, um, from the bottom of society, <laughs> you know, uh, which, which might include, uh, yeah, uh, I don't think she's talking sort of solely, you know, uh, to the ruling class to shock, right? Épater uh, les bourgeois, épater la bourgeoisie, as, as they used to say uh, about provocation and polemic. I think I think she's talking uh, to her sisters, you know, uh, to the, the the proletarians who might, uh, you know, wish to seize the means of of reproduction and embrace a sort of anti-productivism within that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, the fact that it, um, you know, causes conniptions on the right isn't something uh, that we that we are obliged to, you know, find no enjoyment in. So, you know, <laughs> like I think it is important as well to to you know to, to to have each other's backs and to and to to make jokes and to keep a certain kind of lightness, a certain kind of humor uh, in this in this deeply sort of necro political fight. So we've had a question in from the audience, which I think uh, you might have fun answering. Um, so Claudio has asked, reproduction of capital is more and more being disconnected from human reproduction as material for produ uh, producing surplus value. What's the relation between class struggle and reproductive freedom? Who wants to tackle that? I can give it a stab and you can gather your thoughts, hopefully do better than I'll probably do. Um, it's, I don't, I think this is basically the question that um, Marxists and Marxist feminists are, uh, you know, debating uh, and, and have been for some time. Um, you know, it's clear uh, to me that uh, there's still not a wholly digested awareness of the of the very simple intervention of social reproduction analysis 
which even though even though it's you know 50 years old at this point but I, I still don't know if in every aspect of thought and analysis it's been digested yet that the social factory and the sort of you know the, the traditional unmarked factory the point of production are one factory <laughs> you know um and that the 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 uh the so-called hidden abode has an even more hidden abode or as Jordi rosenberg calls it a, a hiddener abode um you know which is which is the home um the private nuclear household under capitalism um you know uh in a sense, I would almost maybe want to question the the premise of the question, you know, the relation between class struggle and reproduction, partly because I'm skeptical about whether reproduction uh, is, a, is a useful category of thought. Um, that's another question. Like, I get why we would use it. Uh, it uh, and I also I also sometimes wonder whether the whether the term reproduction with its implication that um it, uh, there is sort of no creativity about the 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 activities that that are that are called reproduction uh, gets us into sort of mistaken conclusions uh, in so as social reproduction theorists. I would say that perhaps it, it doesn't make sense to ask what the relation between reproduction and class struggle is because uh, because they are the same thing, you know um, because because uh, you know implying that, that there's a separation is already going to confuse us, um, and so I, I, I'm sort of more interested in thinking about um, the the sorts of uh, biological insights that Marxist uh, biologists such as Richard Lewontin, uh, Donna Haraway in the 80s, um, and so on were, were saying about how uh, you know in a very real material you know in a in a sense that historical materialists should take seriously because of the materialism part of historical materialism that you know. Uh, life doesn't work that way. That in fact, uh, you know, there is co-productive uh, regeneration, um, and, and and that's kind of it, right? Um, uh, on the other hand, the the term social reproduction helps us concentrate on the part of our uh, life-making labor that is making uh, the worker uh, for capitalism. But they're both happening at the same time, right? When you you know when you when you when you make your child a sandwich kiss them uh you know and and teach them to read you know you're you're for you're doing uncommodified labor that for some of us some of the time feels very fulfilling and unalienated and at the same time you're doing this kind of uh work that is being stolen from you by capitalism um we are interested in that contradiction like how do you rest the liberatory the potentially liberatory uh, force of mothering out of uh, the the sort of the jaws uh, of of the social factory. Um, so I guess I'm just saying that yeah, that's the question. Uh, but yeah, but it is the question. And do you have anything to add to that? Um, I mean, I guess just that you know the reproductive, the mainstream reproductive rights movement, uh, I think has been uh, one that's been pretty uh, you know white and middle class for a long time. I think that's really starting to change now. Um, but I, I think a big part of uh, you know making sure that the movement is actually addressing the real needs uh, you know of of people who both want to have kids and want to terminate their pregnancies. Um, you know, I think has to kind of um, 
take account of the past failures of the movement, which includes things we've talked about, like the, you know, kind of history of eugenics, the history of forced sterilization, um, you know, the kind of hyper focus on middle class concerns. Um, and uh, I think part of, you know, kind of building, uh, you know, a, a movement for uh, abortion access and for all other types of reproductive freedom, you know, has to come from, uh, you know, kind of recognizing those, uh, you know, kind of racist, um, you know, the racist history, you know, that that has kind of plagued the movement, the, you know, kind of debates about overpopulation, you know, uh, welfare restrictions, you know, all of those all of those things, I think, have to be um, addressed and just, you know, uh, you know, part of um, our movement going forward so that we can actually, you know, appeal to, a, uh, you know, kind of a broader, uh, you know, working class base in support of all of these reproductive justice demands. Yeah, I have one more question question from the audience, um, which I'm glad to get because it was actually one of the questions that I didn't get to ask you. Um, so um, they write, the right in the States has been really effective at weaving culture wars narratives that bring together CRT, abortion and trans rights, in brackets, really trans existence, binding them by means of various moral panic tropes. Is there an effective way to fight back on all of these fronts? And if so, what does that look like? And I suppose I would add to that a question that I didn't get to, which is that obviously framing abortion as healthcare not only kind of connects it to the universal healthcare movement and the kind of demands for real universal healthcare, but it also potentially connects it to a trans rights movement and to trans healthcare access. Um, and I'm really interested in whether those connections are already being made or if you see there being a potential, um, if they don't already, they already exist, for those connections to be made. So I guess I'm um, adding a little bit to this question. Yeah, I think they've been extreme. The right has been extremely effective. Um, and, you know, it's it's because they're they're coordinated. Uh, it's the same, you know, it's the same groups that are funding and, uh, you know, kind of coordinating all of these model legislation that we're seeing kind of copied and uh, rolled out across all the states against uh, critical race theory, uh, restricting abortion, restricting access to trans health care. Um, you know, it, it's all coming from, you know, the kind of the, the same place of kind of trying to, you know, um, you know, build or in their eyes, rebuild like a, a white Christian, you know, patriarchal society um, where it's really only certain lives that are valued. Um, so I think, you know, they've been much better than our side has about connecting these issues. Um, it sort of feels like a lot of our movements are really siloed. Um, and, you know, each movement kind of has their, their singular focus. And we're not very good, at, I think, at coalition building, or at least at, you know, kind of including like a, a wide, um, you know, list of demands, or, you know, sort of uh, connecting all of these demands and connecting all of these movements. Um, so, you know, I think that comes from, 
you know, that, that we have to just do be better, I think, at, at coalition building between all of these different groups um, and making sure that the connections are clear and making sure that all of our movements are uh, trans inclusive, uh, you know, that we're very uh, cognizant that it's not just women that need access to abortion um, and that we need to be, you know, kind of fighting for everybody. Um, so I think, you know, what that looks like on the ground is kind of, um, you know, maybe more coordination among among our different groups. Uh, you know, I think since a lot of these battles are being waged at a state level, um, you know, I, I think it's like we're, we just need more kind of statewide coordination of people who are fighting against on, on all of these fronts. Um, but I do think we need some sort of, uh, you know, there's a lot of groups I think that are doing incredible work, you know, doing direct service provision and, um, you know, doing education about self-managed abortion, uh, you know, doing mutual aid work and raising money for abortion funds, um, you know, kind of doing direct action work. Um, but it would be great if we just had more ways of coordinating with each other, um, you know, kind of more ways of making sure that all these sections of our movement were kind of working together and we were strategizing together. Um, I'm sure that's happening, you know, uh, on, on some levels, but I, I think we could use a lot more of it, just like more, more strategic state and national coordination uh, so that we can be, um, you know, kind of as strategic uh, as the right is, you know, on, on fighting all of these, uh, you know, kind of all of these connected issues. Yeah, thanks. And I would just add to what you said that, um, uh, in answer to this, this question, um, that it's really important to full throatedly insist that, uh, this framing of like culture war is, is itself the problem. Like this is not a, um, like, you know, trans bodily autonomy, gestational bodily autonomy, you know, uh, uh, a correct, uh, you know, understanding of the history of uh, slavery in, the, in this country. Those aren't culture war issues that, um, you know, uh, this is an attack on, on the class. <laughs> I think we can be extremely sort of, you know, aggressive about that as Marxists, you know, it, it, it is it is already to, to have lost to concede that somehow these are like peripheral or cultural. They're not cultural, you know. Um, and I, I, I suppose, you know, uh, anecdotally in Philadelphia, you know, the, the people um, fighting uh, against the assault on gestational autonomy are uh, disproportionately trans women. Um, trans women are represented uh, disproportionately in a militant proletarian movement in the US it, on every front. Um, you know, uh, groups like um, If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice, um, you know, have been documenting um, the sorts of issues that affect um, you know, uh, proletarians in the U.S. across all of these axes, you know, so um, cyber doxing, snitch hotlines, arrests, murder charges in the South around abortion. But also uh, I think it's really important to to link these to the sorts of uh, surveillance and uh, uh, criminal uh, hyper criminalization that affect, um, uh, for example, um, you know, uh, warehouse workers who were uh, sort of going to be fitted with um, technology that would sort of 
monitor their 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 fitness right there were going to be like fitbits uh for for workers where you could dock sorry I, i forget the name of the of the of the warehouse but it was my uh my friend and comrade Cade doyle griffiths who wrote about this in the anthology transgender marxism which sort of uh, i read as um you know an important perspective uh to 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 bear in mind to be uh, sort of gestational militants as well uh you know for, for for the same sorts of reasons you know that uh uh that that we can't get very far uh being biological essentialists uh around gestational labor um and so you know we need to be linking things like the you know the refusal of fitbits at work <laughs> where where workers were going to be maybe docked pay uh if they didn't you know quit smoking or lose weight uh with the sorts of uh bodily autonomy issues that are clearly at play um with 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 reproductive uh liberation but then also trans liberation and i would add children's you know children the, the idea of children's sovereignty uh has disappeared so far from the horizon i would almost argue more so than the uh you know the so-called infamous proposal of the communists that is um abolition of the family um and which kathy weeks sort of wittily calls the infamous proposal of the feminists uh which feminist history then sort of rewrote and 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 pretended had never been raised uh by the women's liberation movement but even more so right the idea of children's participation uh in in society and politics uh you know the idea that children are uh among the poorest you know they are the poorest people in the world and that perhaps um any sort of just or 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 socialist horizon would necessarily involve a kind of generational desegregation uh, and certainly the involvement of those sorts of young people we currently call children and uh weaponized as sort of racial uh weapons uh, uh of, of in a politics of innocence which is basically just a carceral politics um you know it, 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 in questions like you know who do they want to live with and how right um which of course you know <laughs> those of you who know me will be unsurprised to hear is for me you know part of yeah part of a, an anti-family politics and uh you know a willingness that i that i see as really really vital uh for the left to criticize the privatization of care um and to be able to say um you know that even if um all the people who currently uh you know are reproducers or mothers uh in in society were just magically suddenly treated with respect by courts uh and medical doctors uh and cops and social workers uh and you know and were supported and assisted and given lots of cash um it would still be necessary to deprivatize care right that's the sort of extra part for me um uh and 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 i think it really goes together i mean it's important for us to mount this you know because i see on the right an a bunker mentality that is on almost like comic hyperdrive like you know that the the insistence that teachers shouldn't have anything to do with uh children it, 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 that sounds sort of crazy but that's actually what is sort of being said right uh, uh on the talk on the fox news uh and ethno nationalist sorts of um you know uh radio waves um that that there is a deep and explicit reassertion of the 
the idea of children as property and of, um, you know, the patriarchal authority of parents um, over children um, as absolute, uh, such that, you know, don't sexualize my kids, I will hurt you. The settler colonial mentality that uh, ju uh, justifies and actually encourages and fantasizes um, violence, um, you know, that is sort of imagined as defensive, <laughs> Uh, you know, against uh, basically the existence of other people in the world, um, right? Like the existence of other grown-ups who might speak to your child or who your child might speak to, right? Um, and 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 uh, and so th that the right is sort of disappearing into the private nuclear homestead, um, and that makes absolute sense, I think. Uh, I I believe we uh, you know need to be talking about the deprivatization of care, the socialization uh, of, of the necessities uh, of, 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 a, of flourishing, um, the provision of health care, but also food, also, uh, you know, leisure, also things like uh, yeah, education uh, in, a, in a transgenerational way, in the common realm, right? We need to be deprivatizing uh, our lives, basically. And do you want to add to that? Um, well, I guess we're just sort of wrapping up and talking about like what 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 is our utopian vision for reproductive freedom? Um, and yeah, I couldn't agree more with all of that. Like deprivatizing care, communalizing care, you know, uh, supporting parents in you know really significant material ways. Like I constantly hear about how, you know, it, it's so alienating and uh, just life draining to try to raise children in this world right now. And that definitely, you know, needs to be part of our you know our vision for the future too, where we're, you know, making sure that uh, that children have autonomy and that parents can, uh, you know, have their own personal, um, you know, have, have their own individual personhood, you know, respected as well, that their personhood does not have to be subsumed by, you know, their identity as a parent. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that I think comes in addition to, you know, all of the other things that we've asked for, you know, that we're, that we're demanding. So, you know, uh, having paid parental leave and free daycare and minimum wage, you know, it's actually uh, where you're actually able to support yourself. And, you know, housing is a human right, freedom from state violence. Um, you know, all of those things, I think, have to be part of our, our vision um, of what reproductive freedom looks like. Um, I think the other thing that we've touched on a little bit is kind of demedicalizing um, some of this uh, abortion care. Um, you know, so uh, empowering people to kind of manage their own reproductive lives. Um, I think self-managed abortion is, uh, is um, you know, uh, widely talked about now. Uh, there's a lot of information out there about it. But, you know, the right is coming after that as well. Like the latest, um, you know, uh, right to life committee uh, model legislation that they're, um, you know, strongly suggesting that these conservative states take up uh, it criminalizes sharing information about self-managed abortion, um, even suggesting that, you know, hosting a website that has information about self-managed abortion is a criminal act. You know, so they're they're going after uh, self-managed abortion and even just sharing how to access abortion pills, you know, in a in a major way. So. 
you know, I think uh, just, you know, opposing all of the instances of, you know, the rights manifestation and attack on our reproductive lives uh, is key. Like we we should be kind of showing up in the streets everywhere they show up. Um, so that's not just kind of protecting our clinics when they show up outside of our clinics, but, you know, every public meeting of the Right to Life Committee, every public meeting of the Federalist Society, um, you know, every state Supreme Courthouse uh, or city hall where they're discussing abortion bans, you know, we need to be there um, and we need to be kind of, you know, taking to the streets and, uh, you know, physically putting ourselves, uh, you know, in, in the way so that this kind of, you know, business as usual of preventing our access to care can no longer happen. And that's going to take a mass movement and a mass coordinated militant feminist movement that we just, we don't have that yet. But I do think the energy and the passion is there. I think people want to show up to things like that. And people are organizing things like that. Uh, it, it just needs to be you know, uh, everywhere on a much bigger scale. But I really see that there's a lot of passion and momentum, you know, for major direct action like this. So that gives me hope. We're going to have to wrap up in a sec, but I wondered if there were particular organizations you guys want to shout out if there are people in the audience. You know, obviously the most important thing is that people join organizations and get involved. But if right now they felt like parting with some cash, where do you recommend they send it to? Well, I don't know. I mean, Anne's uh, organization, NYC for Abortion Rights, is pretty great. <laughs> um, Anne, what else would you add? Um, yeah, I would find your local abortion fund. You know, I think the the small grassroots move, uh, abortion funds are able to do so much more um, than some of these, you know, kind of big mainstream groups right now. So, you know, I think uh, Chicago Abortion Fund uh, has been really effective. Um, I think supporting groups in states where people are going to be traveling to. Um, so uh, Illinois is a major, uh, you know, kind of destination state now for people seeking abortions. Um, uh, same with California and New York. Um, I would find, you know, uh, use the National Network of Abortion Funds, you know, to kind of find a local fund to support. Um, but there's uh, there's a ton of incredible ones, um, including like Buckle Bunnies in Texas. Um, you know, there's uh, definitely do some research and, and make sure that the funds that are in states with bans are still accepting money because that's sort of a legal gray area right now. Um, so I, I would do some research before uh, kind of donating to funds in states that have bans right now. Um, but definitely, you know, support those states and funds, well, which are going to be seeing, you know, huge increases in patients coming from out of state. Um, aid access, I think, is a really good one, too, that um, provides uh, abortion pills and they ship those internationally. Um, there's a lot of great uh, resources for, uh, you know, kind of um, finding out about abortion pills, uh, like Plan C is a really great resource. Um, then there are groups like uh, We Testify, uh, If, When, How. Um, I'm sure there's a million other incredible organizations out there to support. Those are just a few. That's great. Thank you both for joining me. This was um, such an expansive conversation. Um, it was a real pleasure to have you both. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, Sophie and Anne both have essays in the latest issue of Salvage, which you can buy in our online store. Um, we can ship to North America and to Britain and Ireland for free. Um, we're entirely funded by our subscribers. So if you would like to support us, you can do so by subscribing. 
Um, you can also take out a digital-only subscription if you're in a place where it's difficult to get shipping to. Sorry, if you're in the EU, we know it's a nightmare. Um, I just want to say a word of thanks to Haymarket for hosting these events. Please subscribe to their YouTube channel, which is where you're watching this. Um, we've been on a brief hiatus with these events, but we are hoping to get back to our monthly schedule. So please do sign up to our mailing list to hear about them. Um, thanks for joining us. I hope you found this as valuable as I did. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.